You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello and welcome to the next edition of the Raj Reports podcast. My name is Curtis Valentine. I am co-director of the Reinventing America Schools Project here at the Press of Policy Institute. And today, as my guest, I have my co-director, uh, Tressa Pankovitz. And so I am so glad to be here with her today to talk about her latest piece in The Hill. Uh, how are you doing today, Tressa? I'm doing great, Curtis. Thanks for doing this uh, podcast with me. Outstanding. I'm sure that your readers are as fascinated and interested in the topic uh, as I am that you wrote about recently. And so it's really the opportunity to follow up on, on the article, but also find out where things go from here. And so, you know, the idea, you know, you recently published a piece in The Hill um, entitled Charter School Innovation Shouldn't Come at the Expense of Constitutional Protections for Students. The piece begins with a reference to a court case, Peltier versus Charter Day School. Tell us why this case caught your attention and why it should be important to your readers. Yeah, Curtis, um, really three reasons. It, it caught my attention because the facts of the case are really simple and really easy to understand, yet the constitutional implications for discrimination in schooling is enormous. Uh, to put it in a word, enormous. It's also just the latest in a trend of a series of cases and legal opinions that are chipping away, in my view, or attempting to chip away at one of the most basic tenets of our Constitution and really the way of life that we've always uh, led here in America. And by that, I am talking about um, the time-honored American tradition of separation of church and state. There was a case last session called Carson v. Macon in Maine, where the Supreme Court ruled shortly before adjourning for the year that um, if a state gives money to private schools, they cannot, quote unquote, discriminate against religious schools. So public money going to schools that, that provide religious indoctrination, so to speak. And third, I believe cases such as this one, uh, the Peltier case, pose a threat to secular public charters, which we strongly support, um, by conflating them with schools that exist to instruct children on religious doctrine, and in many cases, teach that religious doctrine as the only truth. So to get into the Peltier case, it involves a, a public charter school in North Carolina that was requiring female students only to wear skirts or jumper type dresses to school. So no shorts and no pants. For several parents led by Bonnie Peltier, which is the name of the case, took issue with that. You know, obviously in the winter, pants are warmer. Um, pants are more modest for girls if they're hanging upside down from the jungle gym. And they felt it was um, gender discrimination. So they asked the school to change policy and the school refused. And in refusing, they said that girls and boys should be required to dress differently to emphasize chivalry 
and that the dress code is part of a code of conduct where women are, and I am quoting here, regarded as fragile vessels that men are supposed to take care of. And so quite a few parents took exception uh, to that gender discrimination, and so they sued. And they sued under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, Title IX, and the Charter Day School's own contractual agreement with the State of North Carolina Board of Education. And that contract requires all charter schools to abide by all constitutional mandates. So they brought the suit under these three titles, citing gender discrimination. Now, if your listeners are Thinking back, there was a big brouhaha several years ago about a baker in Colorado who refused to bake a cake for a gay couple and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, that baker won that case. And the reason he won it was because he was a private citizen. He was a private business. He had no public funding coming to him. So therefore, he wasn't uh, liable under constitutional protections, which extend to public monies, public institutions, um, that would be prisons, schools, uh, government agencies, you know, the, the, the driver's license agency in, in your state. None of those can um, discriminate against classes of people on race or gender or religion, uh, sexual orientation, disability, and so forth. So what was really key here was that this, the school is a public entity acting under the color of state law. So that was a whole question that they were arguing that is this charter school public or is it private? Um, the school, of course, is saying, oh, we're private. But the plaintiffs in the case, Bonnie Peltier and, and the other parents that joined her and advocates for charter schools are very firm that it is a public institute. It's publicly funded. It's created by state law. It is assessed with state assessments. And most importantly, it is providing a service that has been legally bound to the state. So no other entity in North Carolina or any other in any other state, as we have it right now, can provide public education but the state. So the state has imbued these charter schools with the state duty to pro provide free education. So cases really turning on whether or not it's public or private. Now, if it's private, it can discriminate. And it's currently accused of gender discrimination, but we know in this country, our history, and uh, it's not very good when it comes to discrimination. So in my piece, I write that this could be kind of a gateway drug to allowing publicly funded education to discriminate on the basis of race or disability or any number of other um, constitutionally mandated protections that we currently have. And we believe that charter school students are entitled to constitutional protections just as much as traditional district school students are. And so this sounds like a topic that is not just for, for parents or even parents of charter school students. This seems like a topic that, you know, all of us should be um, very attuned to because of the ramifications it could have on other parts of public private connections and the role of religion in in public life. That's right. I mean, if you're going to allow this in the schools, what's to say that, you know, we can't allow this in 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 publicly operated um, institutions of incarceration or publicly funded hospitals or publicly funded anything else? I mentioned, you know, the secretary of state or the DMV. 
you know, is that it's a, it's a slippery slope, but it's one that we really shouldn't start to go down with the schools. As I was, as I was reading your piece, you know, it seems as if there's a conversation or a conversation, but uh, at, uh, at the heart of this is at least one, I think you, you quoted one of the justices saying that charter schools are public schools. Now, you and I have been doing this work for a long time, and it seems as if we're having these conversations over and over again, this groundhog day of us having to establish and reiterate and really, you know, reinforce the idea that charter schools, and I'm, when I use a term, I'm, I really try to catch myself and say, you know, uh, public charter schools, public charter schools. Why are we still having this debate 30 years later? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, you know, when Congress passes a law that infects the entire country, especially if it's a, a pretty major change to the way we've always done things, people tend to hear about it and they know something about it. However, in with education, most education law is created by the states in the states. So currently, 44 states and the District of Columbia allow charter schools, and they enroll about three and a half million students across the country, or about 8% of the school-age kids. But the states did not adopt those laws all at the same time. It was very piecemeal. Um, for example, Minneapolis, the first state to adopt charter schools, adopted their um, passed their statute in 1992. But West Virginia, the most recent state, just passed its charter school law in 2019. So because the states turned to charter schools gradually, and because one state's law might be a little different than another's, the perception about what they are and what they can do is you know, kind of more confusing. And for people who don't have school-aged children or aren't planning on having school-aged children, they, you know, they probably aren't paying that much attention to the finer points, which of course is that charter schools are free and open enrollment schools that parents can choose as an alternative to their assigned district school. And the main difference um, between charter schools and uh, traditional district schools is that they are not controlled by a central office bureaucracy. Um, meaning that they're free to innovate and they can try new curriculum or different models for teaching and learning. And they give parents some choice about their kids' education rather than being forced to send your child to the, the traditional public school that they're zoned into. Um, now, if you have charter schools or hopefully um, several charter schools to choose from, um, this is a really good thing, especially for low-income parents who can't afford you know, a, an elite private school if they aren't satisfied with what the district is offering. And we know that neighborhoods that have lower property values tend not to have the greatest schools. And that's why people check into the quality of the schools when they're when they're in the real estate market. But, you know, really, that's just part of it, because the real culprit here that's creating the confusion is disinformation. And um, indulge me for a moment to explain this. Um, Almost since charter schools got off the ground, there has been organized discipline and very well-funded campaign against them by the teachers' unions. And a lot of people aren't aware of that tension. But here's, here's how it goes. Most charter schools are not unionized. So every teacher who chooses to teach in a charter school represents the loss of a dues-paying member to the unions. And that might be the local chapter of the National Education Association or the local chapter of the American Federation of Teachers. And they really don't like having competition 
for recruiting dues-paying members. So there has just been this campaign of disinformation that has been at the heart of it to slur public charter schools and discourage people from looking into them or perhaps considering them. And, you know, Americans, we love our public schools. We have a public school system that's been said, uh, free public education is the backbone of the middle class. So what what did the teachers unions do? They call public charter schools privatizing education. They call people who uh, found charter schools corporate privateers. And this has been an effective strategy for turning some of the public against public charter schools, uh, especially true of folks who are deeply compelled to get into the weeds on this issue. And so it's really not only turned some members of the public away from charter public charter schools, but it's also just created a lot of confusion. And that's something that we see playing out here um, and the charter day school trying to use it to its advantage in the federal courts um, as part of its its greater agenda. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you uh, 100% with, with how the opposition or those who oppose the uh, sustaining or growth of charter schools to create this sense of, you know, having to defend charter schools purpose as opposed to being able to be on offense about how well it's doing and, and how well it's serving children. Exactly. Um, I wanted to get into, I'm, I'm, you know, as, as, I, as I read this piece, uh, even in the title, you, you really, you know, create this tension, which is a, a literary tactic that, that you use here. And I'm curious whether it's something you, um, you did on purpose, which is, it's almost like a choice we're making. Right, this idea of innovation or constitutional protections for children, uh, and 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 are they? Is this case putting them at odds? And in some cases, do we have to choose? Getting to sort of when you were thinking about this, and and even just framing it as a as a topic to uh, to write about. Talk a little about your strategy about or or how you go about presenting a topic like this as opposed to more of a straightforward reporting of it to you know here's here's the the, the choice um, that's being made in this case but a choice that many of your readers have to make as they're trying to choose um, in some cases sides or or where justice lies in this argument right well I wish I could comp- uh, could claim you know some great literary genius but really it was just where the facts led me. Um, you know, we at Reinventing America Schools are all in on autonomous schools, whether charter schools or innovation schools that remain in the traditional district portfolio, but have autonomies uh, to innovate. So we saw during the pandemic how badly our system here in this country of educating the current generation is, you know, it's really behind the times. And we saw how angry and disillusioned parents were when they got a peek into the classroom Uh, during all that remote learning and when they saw the test scores coming back with tremendous, you know, loss of learning for their kids. Um, And we've also seen survey after survey that shows parents in this country want more, not less choices when it comes to their kids' education. So we know that innovation is really badly needed and desired at this time in this country. And I certainly didn't want to write anything that, you know, could contribute to slowing that down. But on the other hand, as I already mentioned, and I will say again, we know this country's history and it's not ancient history. It's it's 
today history when it comes to bigotry and discrimination. We're about to get a, uh, as we sit recording this, a terrible example of that this weekend. And we also know that we have a six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court. We saw what they did to Wade, Roe v. Wade. Um, so this, this case really scares me. If this court were to take this case and rule in favor of country day school, I, I really shudder to think what, you know, what wave, even if it's not a crashing wave, but a slow trickle that's going, that, that could happen. And I think, you know, this country, we are so divided right now. We're divided politically. We're divided culturally. Do we really need to add more division in into society as we know it, starting with little kids in school? I just don't, I just don't see that as a path that, that we want to go down and it, and it really scares me. So I tried, as you said, to really show that tension in my, in my article, in my op-ed and to make it compelling because I think it's important and I hope people will pay attention to it. And, and for those who are listening, it's, it's still in the process of, of, of coming to, of, of being considered to come to the Supreme Court. So where is the case now and what do you expect to happen next? Where, where do you see things going from here? Well, actually, Curtis, this is really interesting. So the court started out in the federal district court, and then it went up to the Fourth Circuit on appeal. And it was ruled upon by the Fourth Circuit Court, uh, three judge panel, justice panel, I should say. And then the Fourth Circuit said, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a really, really important case with constitutional implications. We're going to rehear this case. We are not sure that a case of this significant should be decided by just three judges. So the entire 16 member panel of the Fourth Circuit, they call it sitting on bonk, meaning of the whole, heard the case again. And it ruled in favor of Peltier. It ruled that on for many reasons, that, you know, not just the fact that Charter Day was getting state, you know, the most of its money was coming from the government, not just the fact that it was created by state law, not just the fact that it's, you know, accountable to the State Board of Education for student progress and assessments and, and all of that, but because it was performing a function that has had legally and historically been exclusive to the state, that on bonk panel of the, of the Fourth Circuit ruled that Charter Day was indeed a public actor acting under the color of state law and therefore had to adhere to constitutional protections. So that was how that ended up. But Charter Day is very persistent and they um, appealed to the Supreme Court. So when the Supreme Court considers whether to take a case, which we call granting certiorari, um, it meets in a closed conference. And in order for, and you have to understand, the Supreme Court gets hundreds and hundreds of petitions for certiorari every single session. And it takes a very, very small fraction of them. I mean, it would never be able to get its work done if it if it granted all the petitions that came before it. And it will deny petitions for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's just settled law and there's nothing more to, to discuss. Um, or, or ponder. Sometimes the case isn't quite ready because there are still other avenues that the litigants can um, explore in the courts before it gets to the Supreme Court. So there's a, there's a lot of reasons why a court will take or won't take 
a case. But if four of the nine justices on the Supreme Court vote to grant certiorari and take the case, the case goes to the Supreme Court. So we know that we have a very conservative court right now, six conservative members, three more moderate um, liberal members. And so we know the way this court leans. We also know that it's been an activist court. We need look no further than what it did to Roe v. Wade for proof of that. But um, so I was kind of gritting my teeth and expecting the court to take the case and then to rule in favor of Charter Day and allow it to go on its merry way with gender discrimination and what other ever other constitutional protections that would no longer be bound by, you know, it's a very conservative school, part of the Roger Bacon Academy, rooted in Christianity and, and Christian faith. So, you know, it's they could start doing religious practices in the school and it wouldn't be constitutionally prohibited by that as a, as a private actor, um, just as we have private Catholic schools and private Hebrew schools and so forth, but it would be doing it on public funds. So I was very, very pleasantly surprised when the court did something that it only does a couple times, very few times a session. The court did not grant certiorari. It did not deny certiorari. What it did was is it, it asked the Solicitor General, the U.S. Solicitor General, her name is Elizabeth Prelegar, they asked her to evaluate the case and file a brief advising the court on whether or not it should take the case. So I thought that was really surprising because the U.S. Solicitor General is appointed by the president. And so Solicitor General Prelegar was appointed by President Biden. And we would have to hope that a solicitor general working for a democratic president would not be sympathetic to the idea that schools that receive money could use it to discriminate against students or could use it to promote religious values or practices. And so we have to wait now and see what her brief contains. And we don't know. The court doesn't give her a deadline. Um, traditionally, they just send over the request. It's called an invitation. But of course, it's not an invitation the solicitor general would ever deny. It, it's a mandate. So probably she'll file her brief with the court in the spring. And I would expect that brief would come down on the pragmatic, rational side of finding that the um, Charter Day School um, is a public actor. Or my next hope would be that she would advise the court that it shouldn't take the case at all, that it was heard by the entire panel of the Fourth Circuit, 10 out of the 16 judges signed on to the majority opinion, and she could just advise a court to punt and not take the case at all and, and leave it settled as it was in the Fourth Circuit. So we'll have to wait and see. So for those who are listening in and they're wondering how the heck does Tressa know so much about this, some may not know um, that you are a lawyer as, as, as I well. Am, <laughs> I am a non-practicing <laughs> lawyer and I, I did pass my constitutional law <laughs> class, although I certainly um, never practiced constitutional law, much to my disappointment. But um, I, it's a subject that I find really fascinating. And, you know, with... Um, some of the recent cases that have come before the Supreme Court and the way they've shaken out, this one, I think, won't get the attention that Roe got, but I think it has implications that are almost as dramatic. I'll go out on a limb and say that. I really do. No, and I, I, I would agree. Um, you know, as we wrap up, uh, I guess the question is, um, so 
what should we do with this? I mean, readers who are engaged in this topic um, have been compelled by, by what you've written, listening to this podcast, and are you know anxious to find out what happens next, but also don't want to sit around. What should readers be doing um, after they read your piece? Well, I hope that they will explore the issue of public charter schools a little more deeply and get a grasp on the good that they're doing, especially for low-income students and students of color, and spread the word. Um, so that's one thing. And if we can get younger people more engaged in this topic, that's very important because they're the ones that are going to have kids. <laughs> Presumably, they're going to send those kids to school. And, you know, they're going to want to know that they have quality choices out there. So that is one thing. The other thing is, is I want folks to realize that we are not alone in advocating for the position that we're taking on this case. The National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, which is the largest resource and advocate for charter schools in this country, has come out firmly in um, support of the parents in this case and in the ruling of the Fourth Circuit that found that public charter schools are public schools. They have always said that. They have not wavered in that. They in no way favor charter schools becoming some kind of a backdoor way to uh, promote religious instruction. And I think that's really important because of the confusion about charter schools. And just because a public charter school is a public charter school, that doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, some one person called it, you know, the crazy uncle over in the corner who's now out, out in the streets. So I think it's really important to know that the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools is very vocal on this issue. And then finally, you know, there's nothing we can do about the current makeup of the Supreme Court. We know that they have made some incredibly unpopular rulings, and they just they obviously don't seem to care about public opinion. But I also urge listeners to pay attention to what's happening in your states. As I mentioned, education is most of the law is made uh, in the states. And after the pandemic, and in the wake of the extreme parent frustration and anger, a plethora of voucher programs and education savings accounts have been passed in the states. And some of these are paving the way for publicly funded religious education. And, you know, I'll give you a couple examples. Arizona's most successful charter school operator is a 42 charter school operator called Great Hearts Academies. They've got schools in Arizona and Texas, and they have been courting churches and pastors in a network of private Christian academies aimed at low and middle income families. And they are planning to open religious charter schools using education saving account funds, which is taxpayer money. I mentioned West Virginia is the most recent state to pass charter schools. Well, they have a school choice program that is nearly identical to Arizona's and the courts won't block that either. In Oklahoma, the Catholic Church has appealed to the attorney general for um, and is getting ready to file a charter school application 
Anybody who knows uh, Catholic parochial schools struggle mightily when it comes to finances. And so they would be very, very happy to open Catholic charter schools that teach the Catholic religion on the public stein. So the social consequences of er er erasing the long established separation of church and state and public education would have profound consequences. Calling public, magically waving a wand and making public charter schools that have been public schools for 32 years, suddenly magically private with the ability to discriminate would cause great harm. So I think the most important thing people can do is pay attention, pay attention to what the statutes claim to be doing. And I mean, because parent power, parent choice, it all sounds warm and fuzzy, but pay attention because quite frankly, not all choice is the same. Well, that's a great place to end. Um, but before we go, how can folks follow you and read other pieces that you have done on the topic of public education? I think you know the answer to that, Curtis. They can go to the Progressive Policy Institute website. And when you get on that website, it's what is oh, our website? Progressivepolicy.org. But when you get on the website, you'll see a tab towards the upper right side corner um, that says projects. And if you click on that or hover over that, you'll get a drop down and you'll see Reinventing America's Schools Project. I think we're towards the bottom. And if you click on that, then you'll, you'll come to our landing page and you'll see where it says team. And if you click on team and find me uh, below my bio will be all that I've written and produced for um, Progressive Policy Institute. And same for Curtis, if you want to see what he's up, been up to, he's been busy as well. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today and for those who who tuned in. Again, my name is Curtis Valentine, and this was our latest edition of the Rise Reports podcast, um, a communication with the Progressive Policy Institute and our Reinventing America Schools project. Thank you all again for joining us and uh, see you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.